Loving Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for your word. We pray today as we engage with it, you'd help us to uh, learn what you want us to learn. And we pray that by the experience of reading your word, uh, your spirit would be at work in us to apply it to our hearts and our minds so that we would uh, better know you and better serve our Lord Jesus. Amen. Now, we're uh, in, in 2 Timothy at the moment, if you haven't been around. Uh, it's a great book. As we read it, I'm hearing Russell read the, the, uh, pa- the passage there and thinking, wow, I'm not going to talk about all of that. I mean, there's a lot of stuff in these passages, right? You're just going to pick some important things and concentrate on those, and, and, and we have a lot to gain from, from this part of the Bible. Um, what I want to uh, weigh into what we're talking about today, um, when we try and explain the Bible, and I'm just talking like from the front or with our friends or in our family uh, to people who don't know Jesus yet, Um, We want to explain it really clearly, don't we? It's because we want to explain it really clearly, uh, we often can easily oversimplify things because we want to make it simple and clear so that people understand. Uh, And so we can turn turn key Christian truths into kind of slogans that are repeated over and over again and we don't really think about them anymore. They're kind of just slogans that that sum up our faith for us. Um, So, for example, uh, have you heard, uh, Christianity is about relationship, not rules. Uh, kind of, yeah, that's, that's true. And yet the New Testament's full of rules that regulate the relationship and so it can kind of be misleading as well. You see, you see, you see how that works? Here's one I want us to think about today. I think. There we go, good. Christians aren't good people. Christians are forgiven people. Now I hope that's true because I've said it from this pulpit. Uh, in fact, well, if this is a pulpit, this music stand... Um, and so, so I think that's true. Uh, it can also be really misleading if we just say it over, over and over again as if it's kind of the sum of Christian truth. Of course Christians aren't good people. The basic thing about Christianity is we're bad, we're sinners, and we need forgiveness from God. And that's why Jesus came and he died for our sins. And now I can know with assurance that I have salvation, not because I'm good, but because Jesus is good and because he died to pay for my sins and my sins are no more. So I can say to my friend who isn't a Christian, you know, you're, you're a sinner, I'm a sinner too. The difference is I'm forgiven because I trust Jesus and you can be forgiven too and that's wonderful. However, uh, on the other hand, the slogan is extremely misleading because I hear Christians from time to time say, well, here's Christianity. I sin, Jesus forgives me. I sin, Jesus forgives me. And that's kind of just the sum of what Christianity is. It's the way we kind of treat it. There's, there's not much more to say than that. As if the only difference between me and my friend who isn't a Christian is that my sins are forgiven and his aren't. There's actually a lot more to it than that. The work of Jesus and his death and resurrection bring us forgiveness, but the work of Jesus and his death and resurrection teach us to be godly. Very important. So we'll just adjust the slogan to make it a bit more accurate. It won't be pithy anymore, but anyway, uh, we should remind ourselves of these things sometimes. Christians aren't good people. Christians are forgiven people. And then, as forgiven people, by God's spirit, Christians become good people or gradually become better people. It's very important. It's actually absolutely crucial to Christianity that we have that last bit at the end. It's not just a tack-on. That's integrated in the middle of Christianity. Being a Christian should mean experiencing moral change in our lives. We should have our things we care about change to match up with what God cares about. We should hate sin more. We should love his righteousness more. We should want to be more like Jesus each day. And not just desire. We should actually experience increasing obedience in our lives having victory over sin that we really struggled with earlier and we just don't struggle with the same way anymore. Christianity should teach us godliness. It's really important to the faith. Now, what's this godliness thing? It's a word that's used a lot in 1 2 Timothy. We'll have a bit of a look at it. Um, it sounds like a really intimidating word, I reckon. 
It's a very religious word. Um, an older translation might have translated it uh, piety. Uh, godliness is piety. Basically, it just means total devotion and commitment to God. That's what godliness is. It just means total, <laughs> total devotion to God and his ways. It involves both right beliefs and right actions. And so it's kind of a summary word. It sums up all it means to live as a Christian under Jesus' rule. Godliness. So let me ask you, Christians, how are you going in godliness? Because that's what we want to think about today. How are you going in being totally devoted to developing true, mature Christian beliefs? How are you going at being totally devoted to obeying God in every part of your life? Well, you, you, you can sort of go sharper with that. Just go through the fruit of the Spirit from Galatians 5.22. Brothers and sisters in Christ, how are you going with bringing love to all of your relationships? How is joy becoming part of your life in every way? How is peace the characteristic of your lifestyle? How are you going forbearing with hard people in the workplace or in your family? You can do the same with kindness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Have you mastered those things yet? I'm sure you haven't. (laughs) It's a journey. We grow in these things by God's spirit. But it should be an experience of growing in these things. It should be a natural part of our faith over time should be the normal experience of being a Christian. So here's a big question we want to think about today. How do we get more godliness? Because it really matters. It's a really central part of our Christian faith. Um, so I think about that question, how do I get more godly? My initial impression, uh, a couple of things. Um, I need to be more disciplined. <laughs> I need to read my Bible more. I need to pray more. Um, yep, the other thing I think that I instinctively see is I need to try harder. Uh, I need to think a whole lot more in every situation about how... Br- being a Christian uh, applies to, to this part of life. I need to work harder at responding better to different situations. I need to work harder at breaking bad habits of relating and so on and so on and so on. Now, that's actually true. It's not all there is to it. But if you've got your Bible there, turn back to 1 Timothy. We'll flick between the two because godliness is a theme that, that goes right through the two, two letters. Um, 1 Timothy, a few pages earlier, page 1194. Where, does God, where do I get more godliness from? Well, have a look at what it says in 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 7. 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 7, it says, Have nothing to do with godly, godless myths and old wives' tales. Rather, train yourself to be godly. Work hard at it. For, uh, verse 8, for physical training is of some value. But godliness has value for all things, holding promise for both the present life and the life to come. You see what he's saying there? It's a big call. It's saying every single part of your life, both not just the life of heaven when we get there, but for now, every part of your life, godliness is of practical value to you in how you live every part of life now. Work hard, train to be godly is what he's saying. So do those things. We need to be more disciplined. We need to work harder at training ourselves to be godly. So friends, I want us to take this point to heart. We should not expect to grow in godliness unless we're working hard at it. I feel like it's a motivational seminar at this point. But brothers and sisters, tell yourself now, I shouldn't expect to grow in godliness without effort. I should not expect to grow in godliness without effort. It's really important that we own that, I think. Um, I think... We all work hard at a lot of things in life. I know a lot of you do. We, we work hard at our jobs. We work hard at our families. We work hard at lots of things, maybe your hobbies. Uh, is working hard at being godly one of the things you work hard at? That, that's the question we, we need to ask ourselves here. What specific effort have you made in the last month to grow in an area of right conduct before God? 
I shouldn't expect to grow in godliness without effort. Really important. But that's, that's actually really superficial. It's absolutely important, but it's a really superficial take on godliness because it's all about what I do. Turn back one more page in 1 Timothy to chapter 3, verse 16, because godliness actually comes from Jesus. If you want to tell the story about where godliness comes from, it's not the story of the effort I put in. It's the story of the fact that Jesus came and made godliness possibility and made godliness the way God's people could live. 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16, it says, Beyond all question, the mystery from which true godliness springs is great. And then he tells a story about Jesus. Read it. He says, He was vindicated in the flesh. It means uh, basically, oh, sorry reading it wrong. He appeared in the flesh. I'm just thinking, it doesn't say that. He appeared in the flesh. He became, Jesus became a human being. God the Son became a human being. He was vindicated by the Spirit. That means he was resurrected from the dead. Uh, he was seen by angels. I think the angels referred to there are his messengers, his disciples. They took his message and what they do, he was preached among the nations. People heard about him and he was believed on in the world. People believed in Jesus and he was taken up in glory and that's the story of godliness and it doesn't even mention me. That, that's how you get godly. Jesus came and did those things. And we heard about him and we believed in him and godliness springs from that. How does Jesus empower me to be godly? Well, last week we talked about, if you were here, uh, union with Christ, uh, which is a really important idea in the Bible, important about how, what our relationship to Jesus is. Um, I'll show you on the screen here. Last week we played this game. Uh, is it alive? And we looked at, you know, is that hand alive? Uh, well, it depends what it's attached to, doesn't it? No, it doesn't have life in itself. On its own, it's dead. It's decapitated. Well, it's not decapitated. It's a head. It's cut off. Is that better? The life of a hand, life and vitality, actually comes from being attached to a body. It participates in the life of body, and life flows into it. That's, that's how it works. And it's the same with Christianity. See, left to ourselves, we are dead. We have no eternal life in and of ourselves. But then we see the Lord Jesus, the man who conquered death, who has eternal life flowing through his veins, so to speak. He lives the, the eternal life given by the Holy Spirit. And when we become Christians, Jesus extends the power and presence of his Holy Spirit to live in us as well, which means the, the life, the eternal life that flows through Jesus flows through us as well. Isn't that amazing? That's what it means to be a Christian, to be united to Jesus. We have the life of the Holy Spirit flowing through us and that's why we have confidence that Jesus rose from the dead and therefore my future will be eternal life too. Because death's conquered in this man Jesus and I'm united to Jesus and the life he has. Now what's that look like in practice? I'm looking at myself now and go, well, I'm getting older, I'm getting fatter, my eyes aren't working anymore, Like they're getting worse, that sort of thing. And you're just like... I'm united to the life in Jesus. I really don't feel it, <laughs> right? I'm, I'm, I'm slowly dying at the moment. The physical resurrection of our bodies is actually in the future, but there is something that happens right in the here and now that the life of Jesus that flows into us, we should expect to make a difference. And it's in 2 Corinthians chapter 4. We'll show you there on the screen. You don't need to flick to it. Um, talks about how our inner lives are being renewed to be more godly. It says, We know that the one who raised the Lord Jesus from the dead will also raise us with Jesus and present us with you to himself. All this is to your benefit, so that the grace that's reaching more and more people may cause thanksgiving to overflow to the glory of God. Therefore, we do not lose heart. Here's the key bit. Though outwardly we are wasting away until the resurrection, yet inwardly we are being renewed day by day. And that's the work of the Holy Spirit. Inwardly, we become more godly. Our hearts should be changed. Our minds should be changed to be more like Christ. 
And it's kind of the picture that Jesus gave in our first reading. John chapter 15, he talks about vines and branches. It's the same sort of picture, isn't it? Just remind you what's in that passage. In John 15 on the screen, he says, he's talking about union with, with him. Remain in me, he says, as I remain in you. No branch can bear fruit by itself. It must remain on the vine. The fruit here is godliness. It's, it's changed life. Uh, neither can you bear fruit unless you remain in me. I am the vine. You people, you Christians, are the branches. If you remain in me and I in you, you will bear much fruit. Apart from me, you can do nothing. That's where godliness comes from. It comes from being united to Jesus and having his life flow through us so that we will bear fruit. Now, I've got to pull two things together there because I've just said two kind of contrasting things. Is godliness about our effort? Yes. Is godliness about being united to Jesus? Yes. It's both of those things. You've got to pull them together. How does that work? It sounds like a contradiction. Um, Think about it like a car, right? Is driving a car hard work? Depends how far you're driving, doesn't it? <laughs> yes, it is. You better put some effort into driving or you will crash, right? It takes effort to drive the car. Now, does anybody here think that by turning the steering wheel and pushing the accelerator power that, pedal that they're actually generating the power of that car? That the power is coming from you? <laughs> of course not. It's ridiculous. Um, however, do you think the car will drive itself because it's got power? No, you need to put effort in. You, you, you have to drive the car. It's, it's a close enough analogy to how this works with us and the work of the Spirit in us. The work of the Spirit is to empower us to be able to work hard in pursuing godliness and having some success growing in godliness. So you can't say, I'm united to Jesus, I have the Holy Spirit, now I'm just going to kind of let go and let God take over. Actually, Jesus empowers us by his spirit to enable us to think hard and to work hard to pursue godliness. You can tell dead cars because they're by the side of the road and nobody has to put any effort into them. They just sort of sit there. Cars that have power have people sitting behind the wheel putting effort into making that thing move. You can tell Christians who are alive, who are united to Christ, who have the spirit at work in them because by the spirit they are working hard at growing in godliness. And it is the mark of really dead formality and powerlessness when you see people who call themselves Christians not even trying, much less struggling to be godly. Now turn back to, chapter, uh, to 2 Timothy chapter 3. So we've got to work hard. We're united to Christ. That's why we're able to work hard, because we have the Holy Spirit flowing through us to enable us to pursue godliness as God's people. Um, have a look at chapter 3 of 2 Timothy. I'm supposed to be preaching on 2 Timothy, so I should have a look at... Uh, that chapter I'm supposed to be preaching on, hey? Um, verse 1 there. He says, but mark this, here's the challenge. There will be terrible times in the last days. Last days, what on earth is that? If there's any topic that's had more speculation about it, last days when Jesus is returning, that sort of thing, well, Jesus doesn't know. The Father will tell him when he needs to know, and so we can't find out either. We just need to wait. In the Bible, the last days basically refers to a period of time between Jesus' resurrection and his second coming. And everything in between, from the year 33 up to whenever Jesus returns, is the last days, in inverted commas. That's, that's what he's talking about. Now, there's two characteristics I want you to know about the last days. They're, um, they're a time of waiting, because the resurrection's ahead of us. We want the resurrection. We want to be in God's kingdom forever and be done with sin and death. And it's also a time of trouble, because we're waiting for those things. Sin and death still rule while we wait. It's really amusing to me uh, that uh, my, my wife is heavily pregnant at the moment. That's not amusing to me. But 
take that the wrong way. Uh, she'll beat me up after the service. Uh, it's amusing to me, though, thinking about this theme, because a common image that the Old Testament uses for uh, waiting for God's salvation to come is pregnancy and childbirth. I won't read the passages because, I don't know, they're just a little, some of them are a little too graphic. Read, read Isaiah 26 later. Um, it's awesome. The last days of pregnancy are about eager waiting and they're about pain and trouble. But at the end of the pain and trouble and the waiting, there's life. That's, that's, that's what we're in. We're in the last days now. Pain, trouble, waiting for life. That's what the last days are about. They're about waiting and they're about trouble. And so Paul tells us about the, the trouble in, uh, in the beginning of chapter 3 from verse 2. He talks about these last days. He says, in the last days, since Jesus' resurrection until the end, people will be lovers of themselves. Lovers of money, boastful, proud, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, without love, unforgiving, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not lovers of the good, treacherous, rash, conceited, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. Gosh, that's got to be easy to spot in a crowd, right? I hope, that, I hope these people don't move in next door, is what you're thinking. Like, it just seems so extreme. And yet, it's not extreme. Paul's actually just describing normal human behaviour and normal human motivations, the motivations of the people we know. This is normal lifestyle of people we would call decent people. How do you figure? We'll have a look at verse 5. Having a form of godliness but denying its power. What he's saying is a form, just like appearance, outward appearance, on the outside, they look godly often. They look like decent people. And yet all those things I've just said are true of them on the inside and what motivates them. Have a look at the first two descriptions there and that's kind of the point. People will be lovers of themselves. They'll be self-centred. Lovers of money. Well, that's another version of self-centredness really, isn't it? Loving money. It's loving money because of what it can do for me. In life, being nice to other people is a great strategy to get ahead. You can do all sorts of wonderful things in life and use it for me to get ahead. If you're nice to other people, they'll like you. That's good for me. You can actually use niceness as a strategy calculated to serve your own ends, and people do every day, and often we aren't even self-aware enough of it about it to know we're being really selfish and how we're being godly outwardly. It's what I call uh, convenient righteousness. It's like I'll do the right thing when it suits my, my desires, my outcomes, my goals, what I want to do. Here's, here's what convenient righteousness looks like. It often looks like keeping the law. Here's an example. You're driving down Camden Valley Way over here. We've got a couple of driving illustrations today. Um, you're driving down Camden Valley Way over, over here. Uh, it's one lane with an 80-kilometre speed limit. I'm sure that's true at some point on the road. Uh, and there's a car in front of you doing 70, just strictly doing 70. And you're watching this car in front of you going, gosh, this person must be some silly do-gooder. They're, they're just so keen to keep the law. They're doing 10 under just to make sure that they don't go over for a second and, and be breaking the law. Breaking the law technically, right? Then you come into a 50 zone and you slow down and they continue doing 70. And you realise the law is completely arbitrary. They don't care. It's convenient righteousness. While the the speed limit's 80, well, my opinion of the speed limit at this moment happens to correspond to the law roughly. Oh, and then it comes to a 50 zone. Well, I disagree with the law now. It's no longer convenient, so I'm going to continue doing the thing I want to do, which I was doing all along anyway. It just didn't look like it. You see how it works? It's just convenient righteousness. It's having a form of godliness, a form of law-keeping, but on the inside it's just doing your own thing. Just outwardly looks like you get the point. Having a form of godliness but denying its power. 
Friends, if we are united to Christ and God's Holy Spirit, the life of his Spirit works in us, godliness must not be a mere appearance. Godliness should describe our inner experience of our hearts being changed, to want the right thing more. And experiencing God's power to change our hearts so that that we love his way and want to obey it and are obeying it better and better. Surface level godliness, mere appearance of godliness when it suits us is completely anti-Christianity. So brothers and sisters, I've got to ask, these are the sorts of questions we need to think about. Do you have a day-by-day sense that you are united to Christ and to the life that's in him? And because of that, do you know the experience? I'm not just talking about knowing it in your head. Do you know the experience of his power working to change you over time and producing godliness in you and changing your life over time? Jesus said, remain in me and you will bear much fruit. To do that, we've got to work hard because the Holy Spirit's at work in us. We've got to put effort in. We've got to work with God's spirit. We've got to use the options that God by his power has given us to obey him. Now let me talk about it at a church level. We're a new church, brings all sorts of expectations about what's in store for us down the track. We've got a shiny new building that's going to open next year down the road and we're very thankful for that. I want to say it is possible to have the best looking church in the world, best organised, to run really successful kids programs, youth ministries, families ministries, retirees ministries and yet for all of those things to just be the mere appearance of godliness. It is possible to have things looking really shiny and nice on the outside to actually, in our experience as a church, know nothing of God's power to transform us and change us over time. And that's where, that's where Christianity is. It's not in the outward show. It's in people really being transformed by God's power. The danger, I think, begins when we fail to expect God to change us. Let me ask you, what do you expect this group of people to look like in five years? Besides older. Outwardly, we're wasting away. Yep, besides older. Do you expect people here in five years to be more like Jesus in ways that just aren't evident in them today? Do you expect that to happen as God's spirit works among us? What about yourself? Do you expect to see yourself be more like Jesus in ways that just aren't evident now in five years? Just arbitrarily choose a point in time. A few years ago, I, I was leading a men's Bible study and it was wonderful. A man spoke about his struggle with anger in a very real way. He just says, I've been trying to fix this for years and, and, and I'm calling on God. I desperately want him to change me. And that's got to be the first step, doesn't it? If you don't want anything to change, remember we saying, if we don't work at it, if we don't ask for it, we can't expect change. He just wanted to change. That's the starting point. We need to want, desperately want to grow in godliness. So friends, the question is, when was the last time we identified something sinful in our lives that we've been pleading with God to change? Because that's got to be part of it. Or the positive side of it. The positive aspects of godliness we don't possess in great enough measure. When was the last time we identified something and said, God, I really just don't experience what it means to forbear with people at this point. I don't know enough of how to love difficult people. When was the last time you said to God, can you please develop that in me? My application for you today, friends, is why don't you choose something, some aspect of godliness, and spend every day for the next month asking God to give it to you. Just ask him every day this month. Just see what God is willing to do in you by his spirit 
when you plead with him to do it. Here I think is the bottom line. And that is, do not be satisfied with you that is sitting in your chair now. I can guarantee you, if you were a Christian, if you were united to the Lord Jesus and the power of his spirit, God has bigger plans for you than that. He has better you in store than the you that's sitting in your chair now. That's, that's the entailments, what we're talking about. Don't be satisfied with the you that's sitting in your chair now. Don't be satisfied with merely going to church or merely getting involved at New Life Anglican Church. Think bigger. Think the Spirit of God can change you and transform you to be more like Jesus. So pray about it and work hard at it. And have confidence that God can do it. Now, I'm going to change gear a bit. We'll come back to the topic right at the end. But have a look at verse 12. I would talk about this if I had time. It makes this astonishing claim. Verse 12, it says, Everyone who wants to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. It doesn't say maybe if. It'll say will be persecuted while evildoers and imposters will go from bad to worse, deceiving and be deceived. It's really uh, important to read that and take it to heart. Uh, if you speak clearly about Jesus in your life and seek to obey him in every way without compromising, you will face opposition. People won't like you because of it. Um, and on that day, you need to have confidence. That's actually a good thing. I mean, it's not, it's, in a way, it's not good. They shouldn't treat people following Jesus that way. But it's actually a good thing that people would respond to you because Jesus said it would, would happen that way. Uh, it's evidence that you're doing the right thing. It's not evidence you're necessarily doing the wrong thing that you're not compromising and following Jesus and and, and facing that kind of response. Uh, So take that to heart in verse 12. Now, the the end of the chapter here says some really, really important things about uh, what the Bible is. Uh, This is a really distinct part of of 2 Timothy, so I want to spend uh, a bit of time now looking at uh, what it says about the Bible from verse 14 onwards. So have a look there with me. And these verses are really... uh, central to what we believe about the scriptures Uh, it says but as for you continue in what you've learned and has become convinced of because you know those from whom you learned it and how from infancy you've known the holy scriptures which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in christ jesus here's a a key memory verse 316 all the 316s are worth remembering by the way um, for some reason all scripture is god-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness. Let me tell you about Anglicanism for a minute, because we're an Anglican church, right? We have a statement of faith called the 39 Articles of Faith. I'm going to put one on the screen now. It's going to look intimidating because it's long. Um, I've, I've made some bits real small. Wow, I can't even read that from here. Um, I can read the top bit. Let me read it to you. This is the article on, on what we believe about Scripture as Anglicans, and it's been heavily influenced by this part of the Bible of, of, of 2 Timothy here. It says, Holy Scripture, the Bible that we have, contains all things necessary to salvation. Where do you get that from? Well, that sounds like verse 15. It's able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. It tells us how to get salvation. Yep. Um, everything necessary to salvation is in the Bible, so that whatever is not read therein, nor may, may be proved thereby is not to be required of any person that it should be believed as an article of the faith or be thought requisite or necessary to salvation. In the name of the Holy Scripture, we do understand those canonical books. Canonical just means the least. It's just the list of books that belong in the Bible. Canonical books of the Old and New Testament of whose authority was never in any doubt in the church. And then it lists a bunch of books that we accept that make up the Bible that's in your hand. Uh, 
lists some other bits of writing there that we don't accept as scripture. It does say, though, oh, they're kind of handy books if you want to read something good that's kind of Christian literature, but God didn't write it, uh, is what it says there. And it says in the end, uh, all the books of the New Testament, as they're commonly received, we do receive and account them canonical. We, we, we account them as God's word, God's scriptures. Now, it's, there's some things I want you to pick up. The Bible's sufficient, teaches us all, things, uh, all that's necessary for salvation. That's what 3.15 says. But it also goes beyond that, and this is pulling a few things in the Bible together. It says the Bible's not only sufficient for salvation, but for all knowledge of God. See what it says, and this is, this is uh, the basis that Stuart and I will preach from the front here. It says whatever is not read in the Bible or can be proved from the Bible is not to be required of any person. So you'll see we spend a lot of time going, have a look at what verse 15 says. Isn't that what it means? Like, we have to obey it. It's God's word. It's not like I have authority outside myself. Of, of myself that I can expect you to follow. It's from God's word because God's word is sufficient for all knowledge of God and so it guides our life as a church. But then it spends all that time talking about the Bible consists of certain books and excludes others, right? Now, you might take for granted that the collection of books that's in your Bible belongs in your Bible. It didn't start out that way. I hope you know that the apostles didn't kind of have a hardcover book like this and they go, here you go, church, take this. <laughs> it's actually a lot more complicated than that and I want to point that out to you because you don't want to get stumped when somebody points that out to you and says, see, it's all just random and pulled together and they just tell you something about how you can't trust the Bible. We want to think about these things before then. On what basis are books included in the Bible? It's a pretty big issue. Uh, Somebody said, well, this part's God's word, this part's not God's word, so let's include that in the Bible. Well, the Old Testament, the first bit's fairly easy because that's the Bible that Jesus read and it's the Bible that Paul read. Have a look at 3.16 and he says, all scripture is God-breathed. Primarily, what he's referring to there is the Old Testament, the Bible he had, the Old Testament. It's breathed by God. What's that mean? It means, uh, as I breathe out my words to you, and it goes through a microphone and that as well, but I breathe out my words, I speak my words, God by his spirit breathed out his words, and that's what was written down in scripture. It's God's own words. And so he says, the Old Testament, the Holy Scriptures, are useful. Do you believe that? Do you believe the Old Testament's useful for Christians? Uh, he's saying the Old Testament is useful, practically useful, for teaching us godliness and training us for ministry. Uh, he's primarily talking about the Old Testament. So let's read our Old Testament and believe it can change us. We need, we need to believe that. Now, when we come to the New Testament, though, you're going, how do these 27 bits of literature come together as a New Testament? Uh, some people would say, oh, you, you know, it's not scripture. It didn't exist at this point. That's half true. <laughs> It didn't exist at this point as far as a collection, uh, but they were coming to exist. Have a look at um, verse 16 there. And it says, All scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching. Now, the kind of statement he's making, all scripture is God-breathed, he's not just talking about scripture that exists at that point. He's making a trees are green type of statement. He's making a descriptive, this is the nature of scripture t- statement, okay? Now, if I say to you now, trees are green, let's assume they're all green, uh, trees are green, and you say, yeah, yeah, but that doesn't apply to trees that don't exist yet because you said it before, you, you see it doesn't work. It's a, it's a description of the nature of trees. This is a description of the nature of scripture. It's saying anything you call scripture is God-breathed. That's kind of the definition. If it's God-breathed, it's scripture, and if it's scripture, it's God-breathed, and anything that's not from God, you shouldn't call scripture. Now, the second thing I want to say about that is, although the New Testament wasn't collated together as a collection at this point, 
Various Christian writings were regarded that way from the beginning. So if somebody points this out to you, come back to 1 Timothy chapter 5, verse 18, pick it up. Uh, there's a couple of these sort of hints that there's a lot more going on than, than some people are willing to admit. Chapter 5, verse 18, and it quotes scripture. And it says, For scripture says, Do not muzzle an ox while it's treading out the grain. That's Deuteronomy 25, verse 4. And then it says, And the worker deserves his wages. Um, there's only one place anywhere that we know of that that phrase exists in Greek exactly, and that's the words of Jesus in Luke chapter 10. See what's saying? Luke's gospel, this thing, is scripture. So there's just little hints like that. Here's a, here's, here's a more uh, overt hint on the screen here. This is 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 15. Uh, it says, uh, talks about Paul's letters. I'll just go from near the bottom there. It says, well, it says, Paul also write, wrote with the wisdom that God gave him. He writes the same way in all his letters, speaking in them of these matters. His letters contain some things that are hard to understand, yep. uh, which ignorant and unstable people distort, as they do the other scriptures. So what he's saying? He's saying, the Apostle Peter in the first generation, he's saying, Paul's letters we regard as scripture. It's God-breathed. It's from God himself. So that it's, it's, it's not just simply a matter of saying somebody at a later date pulled these things together and said these New Testament books are scripture. Now, I think you're going to come across this, so I want to tell you three stories that people tell about where the New Testament came from. I'm going to oversimplify things, but the, the, we need to think about these issues so we can, we, we can think maturely about them and have uh, answers to people who question us on them. Um, here's the, the New Testament came from multiple Christianities view. Um, I'll put you the pictures on the screen of the three views. Um, this view is taught at a scholarly level by a guy called Bart Ehrman, among others. He's written a lot of books. And at a popular level, this is the view in the Da Vinci Code, the novel by Dan Brown. Basically, it goes like this. Jesus taught a bunch of stuff. We agree we start with Jesus, so that's where the similarities end. Because apparently Jesus inspired various Christianities. There was never early Christianity as one movement. There were lots of Christianities. And here's the nice thing. They were all equally valid, apparently. They all had an equally valid view of Jesus and his teaching and various preachers and writings circulated and everybody was happy and coexisted nicely and drank champagne and I'm not taking this one terribly seriously, I'm sorry. But then these horrible bishops came along in the second century and these church authority types and they went, oh, all those Christianities I don't like, let's call those heresy and let's put the ones I do like into this thing called the New Testament and that's the only thing acceptable now. So now you've got this, uh, this New Testament, which is the traditional Christian Bible, which is really just the biases of some second century bishops. Now, you'll hear that kind of story around the place at both a scholarly level, unfortunately, and at kind of a common level, where they just go, it's just a random collection of stuff that somebody liked. Historically, uh, it's very, very hard to take that seriously. I mean, we've just been reading... To Timothy crying out loud. He sounds really accepting of um, alternative views of Christianity, doesn't he? Where, where was that bit about Janice and Jombres and their men of depraved minds who, as far as the truth is concerned, are rejected? That doesn't sound like Christianity is open to lots of different views of Jesus. Uh, if you come across that, there are good books on this topic, but uh, we'll leave that there. Now, one that's closer to the truth is the Roman Catholic view on where the New Testament came from. Get a few more things right, but it's still very concerning. Um, Jesus passed his teaching on not just to random people who were inspired and wrote their own version of Jesus. He passed his teaching on to his apostles, who were the authorities on Jesus. They were appointed by him to be authorities, and they, were author- they had the apostolic tradition together. The traditions are just stuff handed on. 
Don't be scared by the word tradition here. Authoritative tradition handed on from Jesus, which they taught the church and corrected the church. And so they preached and wrote. They wrote down these various bits of um, letters, like 2 Timothy that we're reading now, um, and Ephesians and 1 Peter and Matthew's Gospel, and these things were passed around the churches. Here's where it goes wrong, though. Roman Catholicism teaches that the apostles had this authority from Jesus, right? An office of, of bishop, basically. They handed that on to other bishops. And so all the bishops following the apostles that succeed in their tradition, if you can trace such a thing, have the authority of the apostles, especially Peter, because Peter was the head apostle, and they believe that the office of Peter was handed down to the Bishop of Rome, the Pope. And so where did the New Testament come from? Well, the bishops, with the authority handed down from the apostles, compiled, and they have to interpret the New Testament, and that's where we get the New Testament we've got. And today, you have that Bible. However, the Pope and the bishops, handed down from the apostles, their office, are the authority over it. So you can't actually understand it without their interpretation, or their interpretation, at least, is the final word on it. Now, you won't find anywhere in the Bible that the offices of apostles are um, handed down from person to person, but, but, but that's the belief. There's actually an inkling of truth there, though. Yes, I sit under the traditions of the apostles and they're absolutely authoritative on me and on you for knowledge of Jesus. Here's the story I believe, and I commend to you too, and I'd love to tell you with a lot more detail. Jesus taught his apostles the tradition that was authoritative in the early church. I agree with my Roman Catholic friends on that. But it was the apostolic tradition that became the New Testament. It wasn't that it was randomly chosen, like, which bits do we like? It wasn't that some bishops, people with authority, went, here's the ones that are the right ones, and said, we'll make that scripture. In fact, you will never find a record of any church council getting together and going, hey, we should work out which bits to make scripture. It didn't work that way. From the beginning, they asked the question, which bits are the apostolic teaching inspired by the Holy Spirit? Let's recognise those things. It's not scripture because we make it scripture. It's scripture because God made it scripture and it's up to us to recognise what in fact is already scripture. And so those teachings uh, were were passed along, were were, were compiled in the very early church and were recognised as scripture. And that's the same Bible we continue to read today. Now, as you come to read the, um, the article here, it says it has this list of books here, it has some ones we reject, and it makes this claim here. All the books of the New Testament, as they're commonly received, we do receive an account them canonical. What it's saying is, the 27 books we have, the church through the ages has accepted the same books. There's very little disagreement on which books should actually be in and which books out, because they're the apostolic books. They're the ones that preserve the teaching of Jesus' apostles, which is the authority in his church. Now, there's a bunch of information, but we need to train ourselves in some of these things occasionally so that we can um, be ready to give an answer, as we're told in the Bible. Now, come back to chapter 3, verse uh, 16, and I want to end thinking about this, draw us back to thinking about what godliness is and how to pursue it. It says, and we can apply this to the whole Bible, uh, because it's about the nature of it, all scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness, so that the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. The Bible is useful for making you more godly, for training you to be more godly. You can split it up like this on the screen. It's useful for producing right believing and right living. Teaching, right belief. Rebuking, wrong belief. Training, right living. Correcting, wrong living. 
That's what it's talking about. It comes back to the godliness theme. It's saying the Bible is useful for producing right living among us and right belief among us, for producing godliness. So friends, I want to just draw it together. We are united to Christ by faith, by the power of his spirit. The power of the spirit flows through Christ and extends out to us too. And that means we can work hard at godliness. We're enabled to work hard. So let me just say two things by way of application. We've already said, um, I want you to ask yourself the question and answer it. What are you going to start calling on God to change in you as you strive to grow more godly? Please choose something today and pray for it every day this month. There's your application. The other thing I want to say is, we have a Bible reading program that I know Stuart would want me to put in front of you. And I just want to say, let's get real about reading the Bible together. It is useful for growing godly people. So let's read it together and make use of it. I, I, Stuart puts the time in putting that together because he believes that. It's going to uh, lead to a church that will grow in godliness. But we're going to need God's spirit to do work among us for that to happen. So how about we ask him for that now? Our loving Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for the Lord Jesus. We thank you that by his death our sins are paid for, atoned for, done away with, so we're forgiven. Thank you so much that he conquered death and that he has eternal life to share with us. Uh, Thank you for the enormous comfort and assurance that come from knowing we're united to Jesus and uh, the life that's in him by your spirit. And even as we waste away outwardly day by day, uh, presently, we ask, Father, that you would do mighty work in our hearts and minds by your spirit to make us more godly. Please help us be totally devoted to being more like Christ, both in our beliefs and in our living and in our motives, not just in the outward appearance, in the way we want to live, because uh, your, your spirit's changing our motives. Please do that among us, and please help us to work hard and be disciplined as we seek to be more godly. In Jesus' name, amen.